Hello, I'm Lucy. Welcome to Footnoting History, where on this episode, I'll be talking about life in a city known as the Mount of the Dead. This and all of our Footnoting History episodes are available captioned on our YouTube channel. Mohenjo-daro was a vast metropolis with elaborate urban infrastructure and largely mysterious urban organization. It was a center of the Indus Valley civilization. Located in what is now Pakistan, northwestern India, and Afghanistan, this civilization was territorially as large as all of Western Europe. Because its language still hasn't been deciphered by modern scholars, there's still a lot we don't know about it. But this hasn't stopped modern scholars, writers, politicians, and artists from engaging with and fantasizing about it. This episode looks at what history can tell us about the art and culture and water management of this ancient civilization, which covered territory twice as large as that controlled by Sumerian city-states or dynastic Egypt. One of the reasons I love reading and teaching about this culture is that it throws wide open some of the most fundamental and fascinating questions of history. How do we measure a civilization's spread? How do we decide what things mean? Since in this episode I'm speaking as a historian about history that has been primarily reconstructed and interpreted by archaeologists, I want to take a moment to explain what archaeologists do and how archaeologists and historians work together. About a hundred years ago, archaeology was described by one of its most famous practitioners as moving methodologically from treasure hunt to science. And archaeology can indeed be classified as a science, but it is also a science that involves thoughtful and empathetic reflection on the past and the use of historical skills, including historical imagination. Whereas historians like me usually use material evidence to enrich an understanding of the past gained primarily through written sources, archaeologists will use written sources to supplement and contextualize the rich material records they find. And while as a historian I may lament loudly the lack of a deciphered writing system for this incredibly complex ancient society, I also recognize the work that can be done with the record we do have by the specialists who have the skills to interpret it. Even before we see the rise of large cities in this region, which occurred in the 3rd millennium BCE, we see the rise of granaries, featuring pits and or large ceramic jars. This highlights the increase and importance of food storage, which revolutionized the modes and scales of trade with regional and distant counterparts. Surplus food production also enabled individual technological and artistic creativity, including craft specialization and domestic construction. There was rapid improvement in the technological and methodological efficiency of agricultural practices like irrigation. The appearance of copper and bronze marks the onset of metallurgy, very exciting, and associated production of a rich repertoire of tools and implements for everyday life. Regional centers with small satellite villages developed in the form of farmsteads, hamlets, campsites, craft production centers for bead manufacture or salt processing, and so forth. Such growing economic prosperity led to an increase in villages and, subsequently, towns and cities. And it's here where both the Indus Valley civilization and the process of investigating it get more complicated. 
notes on the ancient cities of the Indus Valley as sites of historical and cultural significance were made in the early 19th century, but significant archaeological investigation was not undertaken until approximately a century later. Since the initial efforts of R.D. Banerjee with the Archaeological Survey of India in the 1920s, much has been done, but much has also been lost. Following these initial decades of investigation, Mohenjo-daro was one of the earliest sites to be nominated to UNESCO's list of World Heritage Sites three years after the list's creation. Other sites of the Indus Valley include Harappa itself, which is absolutely massive and still under excavation, and Rakigarhi, which is now the largest archaeological excavation known to be linked to this civilization. Altogether, the sites linked to the Indus Valley Society, towns and villages as well as cities, number in the thousands in what is now Afghanistan, Pakistan, and northwestern India, as I mentioned before, stretching across modern geographic borders. This made it larger than contemporaneous civilizations in Mesopotamia and Egypt, which were excavated much earlier, and which are still better known in Western education and pop culture. Excavations at Indus Valley sites show us a significant urban-rural divide, that is, significant differences between social organization and material culture between cities and the countryside. But there's still a lot we don't know about how control and or integration between the cities and their hinterland were negotiated. The fact that the cities survive, laid out according to elaborate plans, tells us that many different social classes and economic groups successfully coexisted and cooperated, but what factors held them together and what tensions may have existed among them remain largely mysterious. The first recorded modern note concerning this civilization as such was made in the 1820s by a British army deserter posing as an American engineer, as you do in the 1820s, I guess. But while some scholars investigated and made notes concerning the potential significance of these sites, significant excavations weren't undertaken for almost a century, by which time the sites had been seriously plundered for modern building works. Their bricks were just that good. Still, they have a lot to tell us. Between 2800 and 2600 BCE, the Kotiji period, Harappa grew into a thriving economic center. It expanded into a substantial town, covering the area of several large shopping malls. We know that the Harappan civilization had access to substantial tin deposits. We know that within the so-called Harappan belt, copper deposits are extensive. The people of this civilization also harvested salt and had a thriving fishing industry. There's still a lot we don't know about how these natural resources affected patterns of industry and trade for them, though we do know that they had extensive trading networks. We find typical seals from the Indus Valley as far away as Mesopotamia and the Arabian Gulf. As Egypt traded in gold and lapis lazuli, and the Phoenicians traded in wine and oil, the Indus Valley appears to have traded in etched carnelian beads, or at least using them. Also found in ancient Mesopotamia have been bangles made of shells only found along the Indus coast and in southern India and Sri Lanka. So we know that either people were trading these bangles or wearing these bangles while trading and migrating. The Phoenicians wrote of tongue turners who knew the language of these traders from the Indus and worked as translators, and we still live in hope of deciphering this language ourselves. For now, we have the remarkably rich archaeological remains of these sophisticated urban centers. Harappa 
along with the other Indus Valley cities, had a remarkably uniform level of architectural planning. The city was laid out in a grid-like pattern with the orientation of streets and buildings according to the cardinal directions, facilitating access between neighborhoods and separating private and public areas. These cities also had many drinking water wells and a highly sophisticated system of waste removal. Houses at Harappa, Mohenjo-daro, and elsewhere were equipped with latrines, bathing houses, and sewage drains, with, which emptied into larger mains and eventually deposited the fertile sludge on surrounding agricultural fields. And archaeologists have long noted, to their initial surprise, that the site layouts and artifact styles throughout the Indus region are very similar. This similarity has been spoken of as a Harappan veneer, a deliberately chosen imitation of a model that works. But we also see individuality in how people manage spaces and in what the most archaeologically conspicuous features of the cities are. Harappa itself, for instance, is dominated by a massive central gate and adjacent cistern, not only supplying but showcasing its water management system. At Dolavira, the center of the city boasts a large stadium-like area, possibly used for entertainment. And at Mohenjo-daro, there is the Great Bath, an impressive structure of very precisely set bricks with steps leading down into it. Whether this was used for religious rituals or shared public bathing or both, it appears to have been a space where the identity and prosperity of the city were alike celebrated. The name Mohenjo-daro can be translated as the Mound of the Dead. This was the name by which it was locally known when it was first excavated, and so it has been known ever since. Flourishing from the middle of the 3rd millennium BCE to the turn of the 2nd, about 700 years, this vast metropolis was an important center of the Indus Valley civilization. The fact that Mohenjo-daro, unlike many sites of the ancient world, was chiefly under excavation from the 1920s to the 1960s, raises issues of interpretation. Much work was done without the advantages of technology that contemporary archaeology enjoys, but important concerns about preservation have led to limits being placed on how much work archaeologists can do there. Creative solutions to this so far include unstaffed hot air balloons. This delights me. We see many Indus settlements like Mohenjo-daro and Harappa with massive walls and gateways, but as Jonathan Kenwayer has noted, they may have been more important as control mechanisms to facilitate taxation and limit commercial access to or exit from the cities than for military defense. Unlike in, say, Assyria, we do not have significant evidence for war or military culture. Both Harappa and Mohenjo-daro had monumental buildings, but were they temples? palaces, it's unclear. And the fact that no clear markers of function survive may suggest that in contrast to Mesopotamia and Egypt, this civilization was not dominated by a single ruler or dynasty, but perhaps controlled by groups of elites, either hereditary or chosen. Who might these elites have been? They might have been merchants, scribes, landowners, or a mixture of the above. Kenwayer has suggested that another possible identity for these elites is ritual specialists, which I find a rather magnificent term to embrace those who engaged as specialists with the relationship between the natural and the supernatural world. Scholars of the ancient Indus Valley civilization tend to agree that the people who built and lived in these cities appear to have had a very rich and complex understanding of how they related both to their natural environment and to the supernatural. 
Rita Wright has suggested that the dramatic rapidity of Mohenjo-daro's construction, with only, only a few years, and the way in which it was constructed to transform the landscape and make use of natural resources, suggests that the city itself was seen as part of the landscape, in ways foreign to most modern conceptions of the relationship between the natural and the built environment. In other words, those who constructed this massive and intricately laid out city thought of it as a philosophical statement, as well as a remarkable feat of urban planning. We can see elements of this on a far less dramatic scale anytime we plan a city, making decisions about how spaces will be used and accessed. But at Mahendrodaro and elsewhere in the Indus Valley, the relationship between the natural and the supernatural, the concrete and the abstract, was both intimate and complex. One scholar has suggested that the language itself might simultaneously invoke abstract characteristics and the objects or entities which shared those characteristics. At this stage, that's impossible to prove or disprove, but to my mind, it's an entrancingly beautiful idea. We also see a somewhat enigmatic connection between lived experience and belief in the many clay seals of this civilization. These seals feature real animals, like the crocodile, mythical animals, like the unicorn, and hybrid animals, for instance, an animal part goat, part human being. Moreover, while I've just enumerated three categories of beast, real, mythical, and hybrid, these seals also show that there can sometimes be blurry lines between the two. Crocodiles, for instance, to quote one scholar of their history, have been our gods, predators, commodities, and pests. The same scholar, Danielle Alessi, has provocatively asked, for all our civilization and technology, what is a human compared to a crocodile on his own turf? What indeed? And then there's the unicorn. There's been disagreement about the one-horned beast that appears on so many seals throughout the Indus Valley civilization and in a three-dimensional figurine at Mahendradaro, but I am partial to the scholarly theory that it is our earliest known example of the unicorn. For one thing, both Greek and Roman authors claimed that there were unicorns in ancient India. While we may disagree, this claim makes a lot more sense if we know that these authors or their informants could have seen clay seals depicting zebras, tigers, goats, crocodiles, fish, and yes, unicorns. The unicorns of Mohenjo-daro inspired the great 20th century filmmaker Satyajit Rai to write a short story beginning, I saw a herd of unicorns today. I write this in full possession of my senses. This is just one of his Professor Shanku stories, which I recommend highly, especially if, like me, you grew up enjoying the adventure fiction of the late 19th century, on which the stories charmingly riff. More recently, the ancient cities of the Indus Valley inspired, wait for it, a giant summer blockbuster, less than creatively titled Mohenjo-daro. This delights me, largely because, as a historian of the pre-modern period, I am always wishing for more giant summer blockbusters utilizing vast quantities of scholarly research. Now, is this film accurate? Of course not. Is it fun? In my opinion, absolutely. Unlike most movies set in medieval Europe, for instance, it states up front that it is not making any claims to historical accuracy, and this endears it to me. Moreover, it uses the known archaeological record and historical and archaeological speculation in interesting ways. Most of it, of course, is a fantasy narrative, an old-fashioned adventure epic on a Bollywood scale. 
but it also represents the use of social space in the city. Farming in a variety of industries, hypothesized crocodile hunting, the copper trade, environmental management and failures thereof, and long-distance foreign trade with Mesopotamia and Bactria. It also offers one way of imagining uses for the great bath of Mohenjo-daro and showing seals to represent individual and community identity. It is also admittedly very silly. As one critic pointed out, there's a big dance number where everyone is happily singing about their city as the mound of the dead. Hardly cheerful for one thing and a name given it to it millennia later for another. But I find it impossible to look at a big Bollywood dance number without experiencing joy. Also, it's hard for me to object to an attempt to bring a rich and distant past closer to us. If you're wondering, at the conclusion of this episode, so what happened to this amazing civilization? That's a great question. And like many of the other questions we have about the Indus Valley civilization, it's one without a firm answer. Changing climate almost certainly played a significant role in the decline of these great cities. But what other changes, political or environmental, influenced it are uncertain. In many ways, the Indus Valley civilization provides a lesson in humility. It teaches as much even as it leads us to confront how much we do not know and how much there is still to learn. Until next time, I'm Lucy, and this is Footnoting History. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters who help allow us to keep footnoting history open access. And until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.